0: by the presence of His Holy Spirit among us and within all who believe, and all God's people said, Amen. Last week we're in Exodus chapter 1, and just to briefly bring us up to speed with that, we see in that first chapter God building a nation. When Jacob and all of his offspring came down to Egypt because of the ongoing famine and the uh, difficulties of that, They had 70 people, was the whole nation. Now, God made lots of promises about Israel becoming a great nation, impacting the world. So what we see God doing in Egypt there in those those succeeding years is building a nation in great numbers. Now, down in Numbers 11, you can look at that and you'll see that later on when they're wandering the wilderness, the thing that the Israelites missed, one of the things they missed most about Egypt was the prosperous, wonderful time they had there. They said, gee, we wish we could have the meat we used to eat in Egypt. How about the fish? It was so good. How about the melons and the cucumbers, the leeks, the onions and the garlic? And so what they're talking about is when they were living in Egypt and God was expanding their numbers like this, they were really having a great time. It was the most prosperous nation on the earth at that time. It was the breadbasket of the world. And so prosperity, sweet, peace times, it was a great time living those hundreds of years in Egypt. Until towards the end, things really began to turn sour. We're about 300 years into Israel's time there, when Exodus chapter 1 opens up. And at this point, you've got a pharaoh who doesn't remember that Joseph, a Hebrew, basically saved the nation hundreds of years before. They don't remember that anymore. This pharaoh doesn't know anything about Joseph, doesn't care about those days long past. What he sees is millions and millions of Israelites filling Goshen and continue to explode in in numbers. He he sees that in general they aren't assimilating into Egypt. They aren't worshiping Egypt's gods. There's other indications that they are remaining a separate people. That's a concern to him. Why? Because maybe they'll get so big and strong that they'll want to join one of our enemies and uh, go to war against us, and we'll be in big trouble. So this pharaoh puts them to hard slavery, especially the men, super hard slavery, um, such intense slavery that it's not unusual for men to die on the job. And then t- to further add to their, their grief and the weakening of a nation, his desire, they, he made an edict that they would kill any baby boy born to a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew mom. We don't know how that played itself out, how many uh, children actually lost their lives it was significant, we know, but we don't know the full intensity of that. We'll get a little indication of the struggle and wrestling with that as we go forward um, into Exodus chapter 2 today. But I want to stop just for a second as we kind of get the, the picture here. Israel, um, prosperity, loving the time in Egypt, and then asking this question, why is God allowing these hard and terrible times to come on the Israelites? Life's been a gas. Life's been easy for hundreds of years. Why is God letting it become so difficult, so painful, and so hard? Look briefly with me in Genesis chapter 49, verse 29. This is at the end of Jacob's life. He's the patriarch of the, the whole clan. Verse 29, this, and this is years after they came to Egypt and settled in. Verse 29 says, Then he commanded Jacob, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. That's a wonderful way of saying I'm about to die. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of, say with me, Canaan. He says, I'm going to die pretty soon, and you're not going to bury me where? In Egypt, where we're living right now, in Goshen specifically. He says, you're not going to bury me here. You're going to take my bones back and bury them where? In Canaan, which we come to know is the promised land. God made a promise to Abraham. He passed that promise on to Isaac and to Jacob. God renewed and refreshed it. So Jacob says, I'm going to die. I don't belong here. This is not our home. The promised land is back in Canaan. So when you go back, you will take my bones and bury them there, right, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There they buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. He says, we've already got more than one generation of family buried in that cave back in Canaan. That is our home. Then jump to chapter 50 in Genesis, verse 24. This is many, many years later. When Joseph is about to die. So, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you, say it with me, up out of this land. Where is he speaking from? He's speaking from Egypt, obviously. He says, God will visit you sometime in the future and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What land is that? It's Canaan. It's the promised land. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So back to our question. Why is God allowing these hard and terrible times to come in the Israelites? Any ideas? They've been there for 300 years or more. Life has been prosperous and wonderful and easy. But is that God's plan for them to establish themselves in Goshen in Egypt and, and become a nation there forever? It's not God's plan. How, how are you going to pluck a people who are having a prosperous, wonderful, easy time in Goshen? How are you going to, who are you going to send? Even a Moses could send do miracles and say, okay, pack up your stuff. We're going to go back to Canaan now. How many are going to follow that call? And so this is a real part of it. We ask about why the Holocaust during World War II? Why, why six million Jews die over in Europe during that time? Folks, one of the reasons is they've been away from Jerusalem and Israel for 1900 some years, and God wanted them to have a heart to come back to Israel and make it a brand new nation out of the dust. It took an awful lot of pain and grief and tragedy to give Israelites a heart to come back to Israel. What do we see happen right after the Holocaust? A nation is established and Jews from all over the world, and especially Europe, flooded back home to Israel to rebuild a nation from scratch. Sometimes God needs to send hardship, pain, difficulty, even grief into our lives to, to dislodge us from comfort and prosperity and peace to do God's will and to follow his greater blessing in the end. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now we can apply this into our personal lives, maybe a little more personal and painful, but this works in our personal lives too, people. So why is God allowing it? We're getting a really good picture. Israel has to go back to the promised land. Um, I want to ask another question couple more questions here, new ones. Will God prepare hearts to hear the command to return to the promised land? Yes, he will. Will God send a leader that the people will listen to and follow? Yes, he will. Will it take a special leader with special preparations and special gifting and blessing from God? Yes, it will. Will he send that leader when the time is right? Yes, he will. Go to Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 with me. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Why would she have to hide him? Because this edict is still in force. They're still killing Hebrew uh, baby boys when they're born. Now as we look forward and we get to know the picture in a bigger fashion, we know that this is... Um, Moses' mom and dad, right? But we know that Moses has an older brother, Aaron, and an older sister, Miriam. Miriam is in this story. So we kind of wonder how come How come Aaron slipped through the cracks and made it through. But Moses' life is in jeopardy. We don't know all the details here. It might have been, well, Egypt wanted to keep some Israelite men, right, because they were making use of out of the slave labor, building storehouses and things for them. So it might have been that the edict was allowing firstborn boys to live but after that, no more sons. There's different ways it could have been managed, we don't, don't know the details. So we know Moses had an older brother, Aaron, but for some reason they were really afraid for Moses' life. So she sees that he's a, a beautiful child. There might be more to it than that, that the Lord whispered to her, save this one, do all you can. We don't know, but she hid him for three months. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, Daubed it with bitumen and pitch, made it waterproof. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, it be Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be, say with me, done to him. What's the real possibility here, people? Real possibility is Egyptians come across it, realize it's a Hebrew baby boy, and just either take him out of the basket or sink the basket. The real possibility is they they let him die, or they make him die in the Nile. That was Pharaoh's command. So she, the sister, comes along to kind of, just like in the kid talk picture, to kind of hang back in the bushes there and see what's going to happen to the baby. Sister stood a distance to know what would be done to him. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Now this wasn't a normal thing, but the Nile had Um, holy spiritual properties according to their faith system. A lot like the Ganges in India, right? Um, If you want to wash your sins away do different things in your religion there, you go down to the Ganges and you wash. Similar kind of thing. So the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Now, I'm pretty certain that they knew where Pharaoh's daughter liked to go down to the river. Would have been her her usual favorite place, right? So this wasn't just a guess. You throw the kid out in the reeds and hope she comes down there. This is a a good good opportunity. And so she sent her servant woman and she took it, grabbed the basket. Verse six. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was saying with me, crying. Is that perfect timing or what? Is God in control? And so this daughter of Pharaoh did not have any children yet of her own. So a a crying baby, you lift him out of the basket. Wow, he's beautiful, he's cute, chubby cheeks, whatever else, is grabbing her mama's heart, her mama instinct. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knows full well what she's getting into here, doesn't she? Interesting. Then his sister, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, she she kind of slips out of the the bull rushes there and says, "Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you?" And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Go, oh, good idea." So the girl went and called the child's mother. This is working out perfectly, isn't it? Everybody say, "What a plan!" <laughs> right? It's working. Pharaoh's daughter said to her. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your what? She's getting paid to suckle her own son. This is, I mean, this is a god thing, too wonderful. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, and that word "older" there, um, there's some reference in it to being weaned and stuff. So when the child grew older and was able to be weaned, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Now we don't know how old this is. Could be a couple years, three years, maybe. Uh, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she, and he, Moses, became her son. Sounds like official adoption kind of thing. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now that name Moses, both in, you can make a case for it being a Hebrew name with meaning. and also make a case for it fitting with the, the Egyptian language as well. So maybe, maybe both, in a sense, she was probably, she was trained up, smart. She might have used it because it had meaning in both of the languages. Interesting. I drew him out of the water. She called him Moses. Verse 11, we're going to leap forward, and I'll, up to, in a minute, I'll show you where 40 years we leap forward in this time frame. I want you to think about something. So, as we're reading the Bible, we're cooking along Moses, cute little baby, he's crying, just the right moment, just pulled out of the water, saved, and handed over to to Pharaoh's daughter to raise. Next thing we know, he's 40 years old. We need to stop for a moment, think about what's going on in Goshen, the whole 40 years. What's going on there? Hard slavery. Men are dying on the job. Baby boys are still dying in the Nile River as they're being born. Hardship, horrible difficulties for 40 years have been going on at this moment. So between verse 10 and 11, don't just blow that off and forget about it. not think about it. We need to ponder what are the Hebrews going through for 40 years? Terrible times. Verse 11, maybe 40 years is enough. Say that with me. Maybe 40 years is enough. Now, we have term limits, you know? We're like, oh, if we could just make it through four years or whatever, all those kinds of thoughts, whichever way you're going with it. We are pansies people. God's, God's gonna grow us up in faith and endurance, amen? Here we go, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he's 40 years old, he went out to his people. Now, we don't know exactly, you can watch the movie, and then they'll uh, show you when and how they think he figured it out. But somewhere along the line, Moses became very aware that he was a Hebrew by birth. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, this is probably a fairly common occurrence, probably a daily thing. But maybe not for Moses to see in person. Verse 12, he looked this way and that. What does that mean? He's checking to see if he can get away with something. You ever done that before? Come on, I want to see some hands up. You ever look around to see if you can get away with something? Ah. He looked around to see if he could get away with something, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He killed him. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together against each other. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? And our vernacular would be, who died and made you king? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. Somebody knows, and if a loud mouth like this guy knows, who knows? Everybody's known, and pretty soon Pharaoh's gonna know. Then Moses was afraid and thought, ah, man, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he did. He sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. I want to go to Acts chapter 7 for a minute. Let's go there, way back in the New Testament. Acts chapter 7. Remember Stephen, the very first martyr in the New Testament? He's giving an awesome, like, two-chapter-long sermon to some Jews who were rejecting Jesus, not believing, and who wanted to kill him, and eventually did. But he's giving this amazing sermon, and he starts with Abraham, and he goes all the way forward the sermon. And along the way, he gives us some really wonderful details about Moses in this moment. So Acts chapter 7, verse 17. As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. It's tracking right with the Exodus so far. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, put out on the river to see if he would live or die, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Gee, you suppose that'll come in handy later on? And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was how old, 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. What, where did that come from? Where did this desire and this prompting come to in his heart to visit his brothers and sisters, the Hebrews? Who's doing that work? God's doing that work in Moses' heart. Verse 24, seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So this wasn't cold-blooded, self-serving murder. It was defending someone who was being struck down by the Egyptian, verse 25. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God is giving them. Say with me, salvation by His hand. So there's more going on here in Moses' heart and mind. Not only is he having a newfound interest in his people, not only does he want to go see how things are going for them, but he's all he's already feeling and sensing and coming to know a call from God to be the one who leads them out. Isn't this fascinating. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand because he'd been uniquely placed in in the the palace, right? 40 years he'd been living with the Egyptians in the royal palace, but they did not understand. Yeah. Uh, Jesus had trouble with that when he came. People should have understood that he had come to save them and but they didn't get on board. Scripture is very clear that that was the case. Verse 26, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them, saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing, his, wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So we have that insight from Stephen's speech, a uh, love of scripture adds on for us, gives us a better idea of what we're working with back here in Exodus chapter 2. So let's go back there. Now, right now, we're going to put up um, the map, if we can. And I forgot to bring my laser pointer, so I'm going to use a handy candlelighter pointer. <laughs> OK, see Canaan in the upper right-hand corner? That's the promised land. That's along the edge of the Mediterranean See, It's Israel today. They've been living here. Here's Egypt. The whole, the whole thing is Egypt. Up here in the upper right-hand portion of Egypt is Goshen. See how it's fed by all these rivers that split? Here's the Nile, massive, powerful, wonderful river. And then it, as it gets to low ground, it splits out in all these branches, and it goes to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, Goshen is a well-watered, lush grassland. It's perfect for raising sheep and stuff, which is Israel's main thing, right? So Goshen's where they've been living all these years. Uh, Pithom there, Ramesses up there, those are uh, places where their slave labor did a lot, a lot of building for the Egyptians, okay? So when Moses flees Egypt, he flees Sinai, uh, Syria today, was under Egyptian authority control at that time. So when he fled, he crossed this area and went clear to this side. It's kind of almost off the map. It's from here over would be Midian. Israel, Egypt did not have control and authority over Midian. Moses wanted to go far enough away that uh, he at least wouldn't be under the direct watchful eye of Egyptian authorities and you know Midian soldiers and stuff. So he goes clear over there to Midian. That's where he lands to kind of figure out, what do you, what do, you do with your life now? You've lived for 40 years in the palace. You know you're a Hebrew. You have this growing sense that God has called you to set them free from slavery. But you got to flee for your life, and you end up miles and miles away in Midian. Now, if you're Moses, is that a crisis moment in your life? Are you seeking the Lord like crazy? What do you have for me, Lord? What do you have for the, the my fellow Hebrews I had to leave behind in Egypt? They're under terrible stress and pain and torture. An infanticide, God, what now? I thought now is the time, God, and I killed one of the Egyptians on the spur of the moment, but nothing but messed up came from it. When, God, right? When, how, what now? Go back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 16. It says, now the priest of Midian, that's a really interesting word. Depends on the context and, and some other stuff, but you could also translate that prince. So it means a leader of the people, Merit, maybe spiritual leader, maybe more so political kind of leader, sometimes both, right? And here it calls him the priest. He says, now the priest in Midian, one of the, the leaders there, had seven daughters. They came, and this is before the, the musical. Seven brides for seven brothers. Oh, I don't know why that came to me, it just did. Okay. So now the prince of Midian, Midian, Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The neighboring shepherds, you'd think they'd be helpful guys, right? Oh, it's the seven gals from over the you know over the hill, and it's just gals, you know, we'll help them out, you know. We'll, we'll be servant hearted towards them. No, they were jerks. The shepherds came and drove them away. Apparently, this is a regular occurrence. So the girls would bring their father's sheep and then the the jerk neighboring shepherds would come and be like, ah, wait, your turn. they push him aside. So verse 17, look at this. The shepherds came and drove them away. I want you to say this out loud with me. But Moses stood up and saved them. Ah, What's going on here? What is God raising up and building up in Moses as a man? What kind of man is he becoming? He is a man who is willing to stick his neck out He's a man who's willing to stand up for the oppressed. He's a man who wants to stand up for justice and do something about it for the downtrodden, for the the bullied, whatever kind of terms you want to throw at it. This is the man that God is building and training up. Right now he's out in the hinterlands in Midian, but you see um, the man who God is calling to be a savior. I don't want to take it to the Jesus level, obviously. But bringing a whole people out of slavery, Moses is the man. It says, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? I mean, those guys always make you wait till last, but you're home way quicker today. How'd that happen? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us, because his clothing would still be royal palace variety, right? So he said, it's the funniest thing. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. He even drew water for us then and watered the flock. I just want to submit to you that as God is, is calling and training up a leader, he's training him up with a servant heart. And we're talking about that every Wednesday in Lent, about the huge foundational aspect that it is for walking with Christ. God wants us to give our lives as bond slaves, servants to Jesus and bond servants to the people around us. A servant heart. God's building that up in Moses. He's got it. He didn't just chase the, the nasty shepherds away. Then he helped the girls water their flock. So they say an Egyptian delivered us out of hand. The shepherds even drew water for us and watered the flock. Verse 20, he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why didn't you bring him home for goodness sake? Why have you left the man Call him that he may eat bread? Moses was content to dwell with the man. I mean, I'm sure he told his story, and rule is like, I'm judging your character by how you treated my daughters today. And um, as long as you continue to walk in that kind of character, you're welcome to live here and be a part of my family. Pretty amazing situation, right? Moses was content to dwell with the man. What else is he going to do with his life? This is a good place to have a breather safely away from Egypt. Pray, pursue the Lord, and see what God has for him. So Moses was content to dwell with a man so long that he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah, hand in marriage. He marries one of the daughters. She gave birth to a son. There's another one later on, two of them total. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. That word sojourner there is wonderful. It, can all, it also carries with it the feeling of stranger. And loner, or alone, and feeling alone. I've been a sojourner for night. What does that tell you about what Moses named his firstborn son? Has he forgotten about Egypt? Has he forgotten about the Hebrews and their slavery and what's happening to them? They're still on his heart, aren't they? He names his sons, something. every time he calls his son's name, it's going to remind him of what's going on back in Egypt. Verse 23. During those many days, That's right. yeah. during those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now that particular Pharaoh died. Did the next one? Was he nicer? No, he didn't relieve the burden at all. He continued the same policies. So the Israelites are crying out for help. It says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to whom? To God. God, if you've got your own Bibles or your own way to circle or whatever in your electronics, there are four action words here for how God responds to the cry. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning. Is it important for me to know that God hears me when I cry out to him? That's the first thing I wanna know, is he listening? Is he hearing? Yes. God heard their groaning, and God remembers. Say that with me. God remembered. What's he remember? Not just that there is people, that he loves them. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's had this whole figure, thing figured out for hundreds and hundreds of years. He hasn't forgotten it, but he's remembering his covenant, and he's, he's working it out in perfection, even though it doesn't feel like perfection in, in Goshen right now, does it? In a time period of really hard, real hard times and pain, suffering, maybe even grief, can that be somehow part of God's greater, bigger plan for good and for kingdom impact? We're used to it being pretty soft and easy in general in America. I think we're going to learn the other side of it. We're getting there. We're going deeper in it all the time. So it says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. Carry the new sense says, God saw, that's the third action word, God saw, and that word carries with it, um, saw it happening and considered. God was considering, he was watching and one. he was watching and engaged with what was happening. So it says, God saw the people of Israel and say with me together, and God knew. He knew what was going on. He, and that word carries with it, he had a concern. what's going on now i don't want to blow your minds too big today but things were really really bad for the hebrews when moses was born again they had to hide him in the river and they didn't know if he was going to live or die 40 years later we have this incident where he tries to defend the hebrew ends up killing the egyptian and has to flee for his life to midian Anybody Bible hounds here remember how many years he stays in media before God calls him out there and brings him back to set the people free? It's an additional 40 years. So when we hear in chapter one about how terrible things are for Israel, we go, gee, God should really do something about that, amen? How long is it before the Savior, by God's command and training and timing, comes back to start to set them free? Eighty years later. God's time frame is rarely ours. Amen. Bigger, bigger stuff is going on than what I see in front of me on my calendar today and tomorrow in 10 years and 20 years down the line, big, big stuff is going on for, for nations. It can take decades, it can take centuries for God to work out his perfect purposes for a nation. We get to live as a part of it, it's a blip people. 80 years before God sends him back. But I want you to know this morning, I love ending with this this last two verses. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, God knew. I want to close briefly with two passages to Matthew chapter 9. It connects with this uh, ending of chapter 2 in Exodus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the same heart of God we see in Exodus chapter 2. Same heart of God we see in Jesus when he walked the earth. I want to close with this one powerful Psalm 56. Psalm 56, verse 8. This is a Psalm of David. Um, David even puts a note. Don't you love it when David tells us the situation he was in when he wrote the psalm? Oh, that's amazing. So with Psalm 56, at the beginning, it says, To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, that's the name of the tune, and then he says, "A Amictim of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So, when his life was in jeopardy, things were hard, he wrote this psalm. Verse 8. He's speaking to God. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Anybody toss and turn when you're supposed to be sleeping at night? may have trouble sleeping at night and you tossing and you turn? David says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now, there have been folks... Folks believe that, well, how many books does God have in heaven? The the Lamb has a a book of life. Everybody who's saved, their name is written in that one. I'm kind of guessing, well, I can probably prove it from Scripture. There's also a book with the names of people who are going the other way. Uh, What other books do we have here? We've got uh, Tears in Bottles. So we probably have like a mausoleum of tears up there in heaven, in bottles. We have... Are they not in your book? So the moments, the counting of our tossings, that's in books at a library up there. The tears are also, so not just the tears in the bottles, but the, the occasion of the tears. There are books written down. God's got, everybody says God's got libraries. God's got libraries up there in heaven. You know what? You know, people say, I'm going to be bored in heaven. I'm like, seriously? The, the God who made this place, you think he's going to let us be bored? I think one of the things we're going to do in Oz, we're going to tour these libraries. And we're going to get to the book where, where my name's in it. And the times when I cried tears and God wrote it down, I'm going to say, Lord, you were all over that, weren't you? You saw it. You heard it. And you cared. Folks, there's libraries. There's musselins of tear bottles. I don't know. To heaven is going to blow our minds forever. This God cares. Say that with me. This God cares. He's taking note of it. Verse 9. He says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. When I call on the Lord, my enemies are going to turn back. Now, it might not be today. As a nation, it was it was decades for Israel. But he says, this I know that God is saved with me, for me. He might have to allow some hard times to come into my life, but that doesn't mean he's not for me. And folks, eternity lasts a whole lot longer than this thing. God wants us to try and keep that in mind. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, and the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now the Hebrews could have said that, right? What can man do to you? Well, they can whip you. They can make you work harder. They can crush you under a load of bricks. They can kill you because you're not working fast enough. They can kill your baby boy because they're trying to keep your numbers down. You say, well, man can do a lot to me. But the point is here, he can't take your soul. He can't take your eternity. He can't take you from your God. I must perform my vows to you, O God. And what vows had David made recently? He said, I will render thank offerings to you. Even though times are hard for me right now, I will thank you. Verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. That's what matters the most. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. He's talking about heaven and here, but especially about heaven. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottom. Are they not in your book? God sees, He hears, He cares, He takes note. The last word there in Exodus chapter 2, God knows. With His heart of love for you, He knows. And He's working out purposes that many times are far bigger and more amazing that we can see and understand right here in my little spot on planet earth of rural frost minnesota amen he knows he's got you he's for you hang on to him in jesus name amen let's pray shall we heavenly father we're just being up front again this is hard for us We thank you for stories like this in the Bible that help us to know that your children have gone through painful times before. And we can learn from that experience. We can learn who you are and what you're doing in their lives. It helps us understand what you're doing for us and in us and through us. God, thank you for those who are here this morning who didn't even want to raise their hands but would have to admit, I toss at night. I have a hard time sleeping. I got so much on my heart and mind. God, thank you for knowing that, for taking note, for writing it down, Father. Thank you for taking note of our tears and for saving them, Father. What does all that mean? That means that you love us with a deep Father's heart, that you care about our pain and our hardship, and that you are working for our good. You are for us. Just to be honest, Father, sometimes we need an indicator of that. Sometimes we need to see or hear or feel or know that your love and presence are on the job. Sometimes it's hard for us to, to know it in the right now. So Holy Spirit, help us with that. Bring us into your word, God, so we can read in there and be encouraged there. But God, let us see and know every now and then so we can be encouraged, our faith can grow we can have peace at night and sleep trusting in you Father, we lift our nation into your hands do what you gotta do father however long it takes father but mold and shape this people into your heart's will thank you father. god now we trust ourselves today again into your hands because you're a good loving and awesome god we love you lord We thank you for who you are and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.